able, please stand for the reading of the Gospel. This is a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said to the crowd, To what will I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We wailed, but you would not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God, amen. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that, nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, privates. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. I think it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze, for one is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends down to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. 
This powerful passage was written by Dr. Richard Seltzer in a book he titled Moral Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery, but he could have titled it Moral Lessons, Notes on the Art of Love. For in this vivid, compelling, and touching scene, we see what love really looks like. We see how it accommodates and even appreciates the flaws and inadequacies and needs of its beloved, the object of its unconditional affection. The subject today is love. And indeed, if God is writing the poem, the subject is always love, today, tomorrow, for all eternity, until we die and beyond. Some of you know that the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church is Michael Curry, perhaps best known to the world as the preacher at the second royal wedding. Now, the Bishop of London got the sermon call for the first royal wedding with William and Kate, and I have to say, it was a very good sermon. But our bishop, here in America, got the call for the second one for Harry and Meghan, and it was a great one. <laughs> In fact, it's a sermon that we always stop and listen to in our Discovery New Members classes here at St. Cecilia's because it is that good and it is that important. The subject matter is that critical to our faith and our life. Bishop Curry, Michael writes in his wonderful book, The Way of Love, that our job is never to tell anybody how they should work out their relationship with the living God. Our job is only to love them. To love, and in the case of Christians, to witness to the way of love that came to us from Jesus' life and example and teachings. And he goes on to write, I had no idea that one day I would receive a call from the Archbishop of Canterbury calling on behalf of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, wondering if I might be available to preach at their upcoming wedding. Oh, no pressure there. <laughs> he says, I never could have ever dreamed that I would have an opportunity to share God's message of love with the whole world, or at least the several billion people who tuned in. He says, what I learned that day is that all of us are hungry for love, no matter our state or condition, beyond our national identities and loyalties, beyond our political sympathies and ideologies, beyond our religious and spiritual convictions and commitments. There is a universal hunger at the heart of every human being to love and to be loved. It's true. We all crave that and know that we need it. We all desperately want to give and to receive love, but often we don't find it, or at least we fall short in our quest, which is why forgiveness and patience and gentleness and kindness and all of those other descriptions of true love Paul used in 1 Corinthians 13, why they're so important and so critical to our understanding of that force that is so much more than mere sentiment or feeling. But then there are other times when 
we get it right. Or at least we get closer to the heart of it. And despite the long odds we find in loving as we have been loved, that we are like gods. Or perhaps a better description is, we are like God. The God who is love. And in whom we have known true love. Sometimes our kisses, despite all of the odds, somehow align Sometimes our embrace seems to miraculously fit with another. So we keep reading those love poems so hopefully. We keep singing those love songs so longingly. We keep reading those biblical stories so prayerfully, praying that someday we'll find them. Stories like the one of Abraham's servant today, willing to travel so far away just to find the right partner for Abraham's son Isaac, a servant daring to pray specifically that when he went to the well, he would just happen to run in to the woman of Isaac's dreams and he would know that it was the right woman because when he would ask her for a drink of water, she would not only agree to quench his thirst, but would also offer to water his camels. The servant would know that Isaac had found true love if she cared about his camels. Now there's a spiritual insight. If she is kind enough to water your camels or feed your dog <laughs> or fill up your truck with gas, you know that it is real. And Isaac, who had recently lost the love of his life, his dear mother, Sarah, his heart so forlorn, so shattered, so empty, took Rebecca to be his wife. But then the important observation, the part of the story without which no other detail would matter, and he loved her. He loved her. And that made all of the difference. Now, I have a confession to make this morning. Many years ago, in my earlier, perhaps more cynical days as a priest, before I found true love, I would sometimes joke to my friends that, as a priest, I actually preferred officiating funerals to weddings because I found them so much more hopeful. <laughs> I no longer joke that way because I no longer believe that way. In fact, just yesterday afternoon in this very space, I got to see how hopeful and how much of a blessing a relationship of love, a wedding can be. Some of you know Chris Anderson and Joan Winter. Chris comes to our men's group and he and Joan led the eight dates uh, class for couples recently. And if you're wondering what love looks like, reading that book together is a good place to start. And I was going to assign them premarital counseling. And then they told me that teaching that class was more helpful for their relationship than all the premarital counseling in all the world. And it's true. And theirs is a beautiful, wonderful story long ago Chris and Joan fell in love in Houston at Will Rogers Elementary School. 
They were 10 years old, as you might imagine, it did not last. It did not even last through the fifth grade. Life happened, a whole lot of life, and some of it was incredibly beautiful, and some of it was horrifyingly ugly. There were careers, there were families, there were breakups, there were successes, there were failures, there was love, there was loss, there were peaks, there were valleys, there were triumphs, there were trials, and there were tragedies. And about 10 years ago, by the grace of God, somehow they found each other again. They fell in love again, perhaps for the first time in true love, for this time around, as of 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon, their love is for better or worse. It is for richer or poorer. It is in sickness and in health, and it is today, and it is tomorrow, and it is always. It is a solemn and sacred vow, but as they will tell you, that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. It does not mean that there will not be missteps and mistakes and myriad challenges, which is why love has to be so accommodating and understanding and committed and thinks things are even kind of cute that no one else would see in that way. I remember one of my favorite wedding memories, wedding weekend memories. It was an amazing faux pas. The groom who was actually a good friend of mine, had just finished medical school, and it was time for his rehearsal dinner speech and toast to his bride-to-be, and he said in front of all of the gathered families and friends at this beautiful country club, all of their guests, and I quote, as he raised his glass of champagne, Jennifer, not a real name, <laughs> I just want to say on this special night that whenever I see you, you make my stomach churn. <laughs> so he was better at science than language. Such love poetry did not go over well that night. The groom-to-be quickly recanted, and he tried to explain very quickly what he meant by that. You know, that whenever he sees his beloved, his, his tummy seems to be moving around, likely filled with precious butterflies, fluttering about like tiny angels of love, tickling his belly. But I got to thinking about that, especially after the wedding the next night when the mother of the groom came into the sacristy where I was waiting with him and his groomsmen and said to him, let's get out of here right now. <laughs> he disobeyed his mother. He stayed at the church. And he has stayed in the relationship over these many years. <laughs> and it got me to thinking, who made the butterfly the official mascot of love? Maybe butter would be a better symbol. <laughs> butter that is slowly churned over a very long time with great effort until that substance begins to be transformed and becomes something sweet and beautiful and delicious 
if not lumpy. Sometimes the one we love might make our stomachs churn. And that might be okay if we are willing to look past the inadequacies of another. If we are willing to see past their poetic incapabilities. If we are willing to water their camels or feed their dogs or forgive and laugh and learn. If we are willing to reshape our lips in order to kiss the one who is not the same person we may have originally fallen for. That's what love looks like. If your beloved needs to dance, you learn to dance, regardless of how uncoordinated you are. If your beloved needs to wail, you weep along with him or her, even if feelings don't come naturally. Come to me. True love says, I will give you rest. And if you need me, I will come to you. I will traverse deserts. I will swim seas. I will even bridge heaven and earth. Anything to ease your pain and soothe your soul. That's how it goes. In the presence of the God who is love. Love needs the other. And the other always needs love. And so does the source of all of it. As Michael Curry would say, our loving, liberating, and life Would you come? 
for the 